The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, I'm Darren Fonda, crypto and finance editor for Barron's, and welcome to Barron's Live, Managing Your Money. Today, we have Marion Labor, macro strategist at Deutsche Bank. Marion covers macroeconomics and investment strategy, and she's written extensively about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. She's the co-author of a new book called Democratizing Finance, The Radical Promise of Fintech. Marion is also an economist. She holds a PhD from the Paris School of Economics and is a lecturer on the economics faculty at Harvard University. Thanks for being here, Marion. Thank you very much, Darren, for the invitation. I'm very glad to be here. Great. So let's just start with what we're seeing uh, in the crypto markets today. Bitcoin has bounced back a bit. It's around 23,000, up from lows of around 18,000. But it's still down uh, around 65% from its peaks last November, um, near 68,000. Um, what are some of the dynamics that are fueling uh, the latest bump in Bitcoin, in your view? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. And I think it's important to put things uh, into perspective. And actually, if we look at uh, the longer term trend, in 2017, the, the value of what Bitcoin uh, that year was around $1,000. In, in 2021, in, in November, uh, at the peak, the value of one Bitcoin was uh, around $68,000. And, and today, as you just mentioned, one Bitcoin is around $23,000. So it's still well above uh, its $7,000 price that we have seen early 2020. And, and this wide fluctuations uh, in value raise question, what is the real value of cryptocurrencies? And, and I mentioned it should time. Uh, this is a highly volatile market, which we expect to remain highly volatile in the short term. Uh, and crypto integration within broader financial markets is, is still small. small. Uh, and the Bitcoin market cap uh, is also equivalent to be the top uh, 10, 15 largest company in the world. So, so it's, it's now uh, definitely too big uh, to be ignored. And in terms of, of the rational uh, factor uh, behind these ups and downs and so on, which is, again, uh, a very highly volatile uh, cryptocurrencies market, there is uh, the first one, I would say, psychology. And Bitcoin's value uh, will continue to rise and fall depending on, on what people believe it's worth. And this is what uh, we called uh, in economics and what I've been mentioned in, in, in my previous papers, the Tinkerbell effect, which is... Uh, a recognized economic term based on, on, on Peter Pan's assertion that uh, Tinkerbell existed simply because uh, children believe that, that she existed. So in other words, I would say that the value of Bitcoin is, uh, is based also on wishful thinking. So the first, again, factor is, is psychology. Uh, the second factor, I would say, for Bitcoin is uh, obviously supply and demand. So we have a fixed supply uh, of 21 million Bitcoin, and we have like over 90% of Bitcoin which are already uh, in circulation with uh, a demand which is, uh, which is increasing. And the third uh, factor, which is uh, pretty interesting as well, is regulation. Uh, regulation is coming. Uh, so we might have uh, a broader uh, crypto adoption in terms of, of, of method of payment uh, on, on the, the medium term. 
And if we have uh, more adoption, uh, we should have a, a lower volatility on, on the medium term. Okay, so these are all um, great points. I'd like to get back to um, many of them, especially the idea that um, uh, Bitcoin is like maybe fairy dust. It's associated with Peter Pan and there's a Tinkerbell effect. And I think that's all um, interesting and would be interesting to our listeners. But can we just kind of get back to why it's bounced a little bit lately? Uh, Is it um, just the improving um, kind of macroeconomic sentiment? Is it riding the tailwinds of the stock market and bond yields going down and some expectations that uh, Fed and central bank tightening might not be as bad as maybe investors thought and maybe it'll taper off a little bit in the fall and um, that has been fueling a rally in all kinds of risky and speculative assets. Is, is that what is driving the latest bump in Bitcoin or is there anything else going on? Yeah, you're you're right. And actually what we are seeing uh, and what we have seen over the past uh, 12, 18 months is that the correlation between crypto prices and and the NASDAQ and S&P 500 is is actually very high. So these days it's around 60%. So definitely uh, I would say that the macroeconomic situation has uh, clearly played a role and and especially like over the recent months. So yes, uh, the uncertain economic outlook uh, the fact that we have high inflation, uh, rate high expectations uh, again, and we expect more. Uh, we have geopolitical conflicts. So yes, this has all played uh, a role. And in addition to that, uh, I would add actually the the, the fact that um, what we have seen uh, last 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 year is we had like a lot of liquidity in the market. So we have this kind of excess liquidity. Uh, with extremely low interest rates, and all of that have weighted on the cost of capital during the, the past two years, uh, making it financing cheap for business and markets. And, and we see this this strong correlation between uh, the fact that when you have like a lot of liquidity, uh, stock markets are uh, increasing, but um, when you have like uh, quantitative tightening, uh, the stock markets have been declining, and it has been true. Actually, it's what we have seen for for the Nasdaq. It's what we have seen for SPN 500, and it's obviously uh, what we have seen for for Bitcoin and the crypto uh, crypto asset prices in, in general. Uh, and just to give you some number, uh, since the first rate hike in March uh, this year, Bitcoin has lost uh, around uh, half of, of, of the market uh, price that it was worth before end of last year. So we, we've seen an increasing correlation or a tightening of the correlation between Bitcoin and, and equities like the S&P 500. Um, we're also seeing a correlation between Bitcoin and um, monetary tightening. Um, but the monetary tightening um, is kind of just getting started. And I don't think it's going to be ending anytime soon. In fact, it's probably only going to increase in the U.S., um, certainly uh, in Europe, maybe in Japan. So is is there excessive optimism built into Bitcoin now um, if, in fact, monetary tightening is just going to continue and uh, we are not going to get uh, a pause in, in this tightening cycle over the next six months? I mean, it's a little bit hard to say what's going to happen in 2023. Maybe the market is anticipating that 2023 will be an easing. It'll be an easing of the of the cycle of the tightening cycle. But it, I guess my question is, is Bitcoin, is the bounce getting ahead of itself 
and and what will the longevity of it be given these macro factors yes that, that i mean that, there are a lot of, of of good questions actually yes so uh, again i think this this volatility is here to stay and i don't think it, it's going to to get we, we are going to get rid of uh, this volatility in, anytime soon and in in terms of factors, I think it's very important to distinguish two categories of factor, uh, and I will call like more structural factors, like again the psychology, which plays an important part, uh, the supply and the demand, uh, regulation as well, which is coming, and the more like uh, cycl cy cyclical uh, factors, which is as you mentioned the economic outlook, the fact that we have high inflation. Uh, we had a lot of liquidity and we have quantitative these days. Uh, the fact that we expect then rate hike uh, expectations, we also have like a lot of uh, instability in terms of geopolitics. This, this played a role. Uh, and to go back on your point in terms of the correlation between the, the NASDAQ and, and the, the S&P 500 and cryptocurrencies in general and, and Bitcoin, which is, I mean, almost half of the crypto market cap in total. Uh, we have seen an increase uh, in this correlation. So the correlation has peaked to 80 percent uh, two weeks ago, but it's still around 70 70 percent, which is pretty high. And, and the way I interpret it is, uh, we I think crypto and 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 Bitcoin uh, are moving closer and closer to to traditional asset classes these days. Uh, it's highly correlated again to, to U.S. Uh, to U.S. equities, but it's we are also expecting regulation. So regulation should uh, should come actually later this year in the US and, and, and in Europe. We are almost there. Uh, and, and it plays as well uh, an important role. So let's talk about Bitcoin and inflation, because, um, you know, one of the primary arguments or use cases for Bitcoin has long been that it would be a hedge against inflation because of its limited supply, which increases at a very fixed rate. Um, and is capped, as you pointed out, at 21 million coins. And I think we're a little over 18 million now. Um, and yet, as we have seen uh, in the last year or so, inflation and inflation expectations have kind of shot through the roof um, and Bitcoin has collapsed in price. So it hasn't done its job as an inflation hedge, at least in the near term. Uh, and that kind of also raises the question of whether it can act as a store of value or as digital gold, which um, its proponents also claim um, that it can and should be viewed as. Um, so if it's not digital gold and it's not an inflation hedge, uh, it's not a very useful transaction currency because it's so volatile. Um, what is it useful for? Uh, and then secondarily, um, you have compared it to digital diamonds. Uh, and I don't know if that gets into kind of the psychology of Bitcoin, but I'm wondering if you could talk about both things, the use case of Bitcoin um, and the idea that it's kind of like uh, a diamond, which didn't have um, much utility uh, and popularity until De Beers came along and um, managed to reinvent the diamond um, as a, something that people would want for an engagement ring, which was incredibly savvy marketing um, and sent the price of diamonds up uh, tremendously. So I know I packed a lot in there, but um, feel free to have at it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in terms of digital gold, uh, last year, uh, definitely Bitcoin was uh, a good hedge against inflation. I think everyone uh, agree, agrees on that, at least most people. And, and yes, it might be no longer the case. Uh, we have seen price increases as inflation picked up last year, 
but, but it was again uh, due to excess liquidity that also drove uh, tech stocks much higher. And we have seen that uh, recently with the Fed uh, tightening interest rate uh, increasing, that, I mean, prospect of higher rates deflated valuations and, and cryptocurrencies follow suit. So, and, and we saw it again in May and in the, in, in, in the other months uh, that despite the, the latest uh, high number that we got for US CPI, I mean, cryptocurrencies like decline or, or broadly remain stable. So de definitely, I, I wouldn't say that Bitcoin is, is still uh, digital gold uh, this day. So in, in terms of what it is, yeah, as you mentioned, so given that it's no longer digital gold, uh, I, I would say that it's probably like quite interesting to think about uh, what happened in the diamond industry and, and, and maybe it, it could be like more appropriate to call it digital diamonds. And, and yes, you, you, you are absolutely right. And it's what I mentioned in, in, in a note that uh, I found the story about the billiards and diamond pretty fascinating. So what happened uh, before World War II, uh, only 10% of engagement rings contained diamonds. Uh, and basically, we know that the billiards uh, knew that diamonds had no intrinsic value. Uh, and this company uh, really sought to establish a profitable international diamond market. And, and they conducted in, in a, a high, big, in-depth market research. And from that, uh, very interesting, almost no one wanted or needed diamonds. Uh, and this problem, which was basically like a low demand uh, for diamond, was uh, compounded by the fact that there was uh, a very uh, high, uh, almost unlimited supply of diamonds. Uh, we have we have other gems. I'm thinking about the Penites, the Alexandrite, the Jadis, which are much uh, rarer than diamonds. And we also have um, we have uh, we also have uh, the diamonds, synthetized synthetic di diamonds as well. Like we can uh, literally create. So, in response, uh, the beers basically started uh, marketing, communicating values and ethics surrounding love, romance, and marriage, and and this started actually creating a, a demand for, for diamonds. And what I found pretty interesting is like they, they almost set the price for diamond because uh, if we look at what they've been doing during marketing campaign, uh, in the late 1930s, uh, the beer suggested that the cost of an engagement ring was one month's salary. Uh, and there was still a demand for, for, for engagement ring and for diamonds. So in the 1980s, the beers uh, started another marketing campaign with uh, basically asking, isn't two months salary a small price to pay for something that lasts forever when they were talking about engagement rings? So they, I wouldn't say manage, but they, they, they have basically set the price to two months of diamonds and people still think that uh, these days that diamond engagement ring with a diamond uh, is almost uh, two months on salary. And what is very interesting is today we have 75% of American brides uh, who are wearing a diamond engagement ring. And actually, if you look at the survey, uh, most, most of them, uh, most of engagement rings are, are still worth uh, around two months salary. So, so yeah, again, what I want to say about uh, diamond is like, you can have, um, you, you, you you have like a lot of uh, prices, fluctuations in commodity, and uh, we shouldn't underestimate uh, the power of communication and marketing.
So that's that's fascinating. Uh, you know, De Beers is a, a company, obviously, and there's nobody as opposed to Bitcoin, where there's no individual right now um, or organization. And there really never has been, um, uh, aside from Sasha, Satoshi Nakamoto, who started it um, years ago. And no one really knows who that is um, that could um, promote Bitcoin. So it's kind of left to the community of Bitcoiners and, and users and, and, and crypto enthusiasts. Um, to, uh, I suppose, market um, this uh, as a commodity that has value. Um, I don't think that anybody's going to be buying a Bitcoin diamond ring because that's not really, or engagement ring rather, because it's not really quite possible, but maybe somebody will invent something like that. Um, so, uh, but, but, the point, but the point you're making is that um, this, is a, this is a commodity that lives on the psychology and enthusiasm of the user base and uh, demand that is artificially inflated because there is no real intrinsic value to the commodity itself. There's no underlying use case for it. However, other than the fact that people believe that it will have um, some kind of utility or value in the future and the price will go up. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. If you look at diamond between one month salary and two months salary, I mean, no one has the same salary and it's a big, it's a big gap. And for Bitcoin, I mean, I'm always asked what is the fair price of a Bitcoin. But if you look at the price in 2017, it was $1,000. If you look at 2021 at the peak, it was $68,000. Yeah, so that's more than a couple of months salary for most people. <laughs> that, that's definitely more than a couple of months salary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so so um, you, you do actually have a price target, though, on Bitcoin of twenty seven thousand um, by the end of the year. So there are there are ways to try and value it or there are correlations. Can you talk a little bit about how you arrived at that twenty seven thousand dollar target for Bitcoin? Yeah, so I, I mean, it, it's very hard actually to value the, the, the price of, uh, of Bitcoin, especially given that it, it's, it's very highly volatile. Uh, so, and you have a lot of factors that you can take into consideration. And actually, what uh, what what we did, um, we look at the correlation between the Nasdaq and the SP 500, uh, and it was very high. Actually, when we did that, it was like around 80 percent, so extremely high. And what we what what we been doing is looking at the correlation, which is extremely high. And uh, looking at what uh, our strategists were expecting for, for the S&P 500, uh, we estimated a, a range of prices for Bitcoin. And we arrived at that price by the end of the year. And so that's kind of linked to a price target for the S&P 500 uh, that, that Deutsche Bank has. And that price target is, is what on the S&P 500? Yeah, it, it was the, the absolutely. It was like the price target that we had uh, for the S and P five hundred, uh, which might uh, which might actually be slightly high, but it's what we expected. Yes, I think it's forty. Is it forty seven hundred on the S and P? Four thousand seven seven fifty. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, who knows if the S and P is the high, high yeah. range of, of of our target? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, let's talk a little bit also about some of the stresses that we've seen in the crypto market. Um, and there have been quite a few lately, not just the macro stresses, but, um, you know, crypto hasn't done itself any favors in the last few months uh, with instilling confidence um, with the collapse of um, an algorithmic stable coin, Terra Luna, um, followed by the bankruptcy of a major um, crypto lender, 
Celsius Network. Uh, we've also seen the collapse of a crypto hedge fund, Three Arrows Capital. Uh, and I, I think the, the concern for investors is that um, one thing kind of led to another and there were a lot of spillover effects uh, from one coin or company um, to the broader markets. And this is kind of raising some questions about whether um, stress or, or liquidity crisis in one area can be contained um, at all, uh, given the kind of underlying technological features of crypto, which include um, automated or forced liquidations of collateral um, or margin calls um, when, you know, when there are, when there are steep t- price declines. And um, because there's no real regulation in crypto, there's also no circuit breakers. So you don't have like a New York stock exchange or, or any kind of regulator who can step in and, and put a halt to, to severe market declines or prevent contagion from spreading from one part of the market to another. Um, what are your views on that? And, and, and do you think that that um, is, is that kind of a fatal flaw for crypto or maybe not fatal, but a, a something that should really give investors pause before they decide to, to dip in? Yeah, I think what we have seen, uh, it, it, I, I would call it like a, a spring cleaning. And before, uh, um, we, I mean, we have like around 10,000 cryptocurrencies. So there, there, there are a lot of cryptocurrencies and many tend to regard like all these existing cryptocurrencies as a homogeneous group, but there are immense big huge differences among them. Uh, some are having real useful applications, uh, others are acting more as fragile speculative uh, plays. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't be, I, I wasn't, to be honest, that surprised that periods of economic and, and financial stress uh, have highlighted this, this big and, and huge differences. So I, I think it was a good thing uh, to have this kind of, of spring cleaning. It's also important for people to realize that uh, cryptocurrencies are not all the same. And, and, and when we think about crypto, we think about Bitcoin, but not uh, all cryptocurrencies are similar to Bitcoin. Ethereum is far uh, different with more use case uh, than, than other cryptocurrencies, most cryptocurrencies as well. And we should distinguish uh, all of them. And, and it's a bit like uh, commodities. I mean, if you look at the commodity market, all commodities are very different. Uh, if you look at, uh, F- at the FX, uh, foreign exchange, many Many currencies are very, very different. Actually, it's unfair. You cannot compare the U.S. dollar with uh, the currency of another country where you have like political instability um, and high inflation. That's that's very, very different. And and I think it's what the it's what the recent heaven have, have shown. Uh, this is a good reminder that uh, not all cryptocurrencies are the same. Uh, some are very new, very risky, uh, and they are very different. So that's that's a great point, and it kind of can take us to Ether, which has been doing phenomenally well over the last month. Um, it's uh, doubled from its lows. It's outperformed Bitcoin. Ether is the native token of the Ethereum blockchain network. Um, that network is used for all kinds of decentralized finance applications, stable coins, NFTs. Um, and that network is getting uh, undergoing a big upgrade to make it uh, less expensive to transact on um, and to make it much faster. Um, it's called Ethereum 2.0 or the big merge. It's supposed to be happening in September. It'll probably happen in stages. Um, but this seems to be giving um, Ether, the native token of this network, quite a big bounce. Um, do you have any views on, on Ether as an alternative to Bitcoin? Um, you know, if Bitcoin doesn't have any, you know, intrinsic value 
um, Ether kind of does because um, as if, if more if more blockchains are built on top of it or linked to it and there are more apps on it, um, one can make a case that there is underlying value in the Ether token. Do you share that view? I absolutely share that view. And actually, you have, I mean, as you mentioned, you have like a lot of uh, DeFi application for, 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 for Ether. And that's why I used to call, uh, when everyone was calling digital gold Bitcoin, I, I used to call digital silver uh, Ether because, again, you have like a lot of use cases similar to silver. And it's, it's less uh, expensive than Bitcoin. And I could definitely see uh, both of them to coexist. In the long in the long run, and just Darren, to go back on your question about stable coin, um, I mean stable coins which are pegged to, to the dollar basket of currencies, uh, they did offer the hope of more stability in the cryptocurrency market. And, and what we have seen with the recent event, it's uh, it hasn't worked out well. Uh, there were some concerns over stablecoins, so it's not new. Uh, I'm thinking about Tether and, and few others. And what we have seen with, with the Terra crash that, that you mentioned, uh, we have seen several vulnerabilities. Uh, it has highlighted the lack of liquidity, the propensity of spillovers amid uh, investor sentiment, and, and the fact that uh, there is a, a fragmentation in terms of nature of trading regulation and asset availability. And if we look at uh, history, of major peg breakdowns, uh, including those in Latin America and Asia, uh, it may also offer a lesson for stablecoin. And and what we are seeing from history is like uh, no peg uh, lasts forever. Uh, when you have like macro liquidity withdrawal and rate hikes by uh, by a, a big central bank like the Fed, along with regulatory pressures, uh, it's going to uh, continue to test confidence in the main issuers of stablecoins and the value of, of those coins. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting point um, about countries adopting um, Bitcoin um, and or stable coins. And the most prominent example is El Salvador, um, which is coming upon its one year anniversary of adopting Bitcoin um, as legal tender. I think the Central African Republic has also adopted um, Bitcoin, but uh, I don't think it's gone particularly well in El Salvador. Um, there's a lot of concerns about the impact um, of uh, you know transacting in Bitcoin on uh, on the country's finances on its banks. I don't think it's been particularly widely adopted among citizens. There's been a plan to try to use geothermal energy to mine Bitcoin um, in El Salvador, but it's not done too much. I think so far. Do you think it's realistic to think that other countries will follow um, these? two countries in adopting Bitcoin as legal tender? Um, or is this kind of an experiment that is kind of not really working out? And I don't want to say failing, but uh, maybe not working out the way the proponents of Bitcoin and the country's um, president would would uh, like. Yeah, so I, I would split the world into three different categories of countries. Um, I mean, the, the pro, the countries pro Bitcoin, like you mentioned, uh, El Salvador, Central African Republic. Uh, the countries against uh, cryptocurrency uh, and who have adopted like a very harsh regulation, harsh stance on regulation. I'm thinking about China, uh, which has banned cryptocurrency and uh, like Europe and the US in which people have, uh, have, I mean, they are planning to regulate cryptocurrency, but not to ban them. Uh, and if you look at, uh, if you look at countries actually, with high uh, unstable uh, 
where, where politics are very unstable, uh, economics actually where you have like high inflation, where you have like uh, low growth. Um, I mean, this kind of unstable countries, I, I, I yeah, I, I was not that surprised actually that they could find Bitcoin uh, probably like more stable than, than, than their currency. And, and it makes sense actually in this case that, uh, that they have thought about adopting an, a, another currency and, and, and Bitcoin in this case. Well, I think it says something about your country's currency if you think Bitcoin is a better alternative uh, because it's not exactly a stable currency. Um, but but if, you think yeah. about, if you think about the US or if you think about Europe or the UK, I mean, when you have like the dollar, when you have the euro, when you have the pound, I mean, it's very stable. Uh, the, the Fed, the, the ECB, the, the, the central bank in general are doing like a great job. I mean, I, I don't see why actually we, we should adopt cryptocurrencies as legal tender in, in, in those countries, for example. Yeah, I think that the competition from the traditional fiat currencies is simply too great. And there's um, too many real assets and banks backing them um, to make Bitcoin a credible um, contender as, as, a, as a legal um, uh, tender, as a legal currency. Um, and, and I think um, one, one of the point I'd like to make is just about um, the, the climate impact of uh, Bitcoin mining in particular based on proof of work um, and the controversy of, over it. Um, you, you've talked a little bit about regulation um, and saying that regulation is coming to crypto. Uh, it's still, I think, a jump ball in Washington. It's still kind of up in the air who's going to regulate uh, Bitcoin and the exchanges and other cryptos. But one, one way that it could be regulated, I think, is to impose a carbon tax um, on Bitcoin miners um, to, to extract some kind of toll um, for the huge energy expenditures um, and carbon emissions um, that arise from mining Bitcoin in particular. Do you think that's at all realistic um, or should we just hope for more renewables to be used as fuel um, for energy production and, and then also for Bitcoin mining? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the fact that tax, uh, we can, I mean, government can impose tax to, to disincentivize carbon for crypto mining. That, that, that I think that that's one of the ideas. Uh, I, I would say that there are several ways to approach the decarbonization of, of cryptocurrencies and, uh, and, and tax, obviously. But uh, you can also transition to renewable energy sources. And I'm, I'm thinking, for example, you mentioned El Salvador. And they have been trying to 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 mine with the volcanoes energy. I, I don't think it has been very successful so far. But this is another way. Uh, you can also think about switching from proof of work to proof of stake protocols, and it's what uh, a Terram, uh, as you mentioned earlier on, uh, it's what they are doing these days. Uh, you can also pre-mine the tokens. Uh, it's what XRP are doing. So so you have several ways to 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 approach the decarbonization of, of cryptocurrencies, actually. But I don't think Bitcoin is ever going to switch to a proof of stake um, protocol, right? I don't think so. I don't see it in the short term. Uh, I, I, I don't think so. But nothing is impossible. And actually, Ethereum did it. Yeah, um, but it was a, it's a very different um, technological undertaking than um, trying to switch over Bitcoin. Um, well, that's all the time we have for today. Um, thank you so much for being here, Marion, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow. Join Market Watch's Alessandra Malito and Jody King, Director of Wealth Planning at Fiduciary Trust Company, as they discuss the best strategies for retirees to take their required minimum distributions in the most financially efficient manner. So thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and have a nice day.
The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.